Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi, everyone. Dr. Adriana Popescu with you for another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I'm really excited to have with me today someone I've known for a long, long time. His name is Dr. Ryan Rominger. He is a certified licensed counselor in Montana with his own private practice called Rominger Counseling. He's also currently the Associate University Research Chair for the Center for Educational and Instructional Technology Research in the College of Doctoral Studies at the University of Phoenix. He's worked in academic and research settings since 2004, is currently a member of SAGE, the Society for Sexual, Affectional, Intersex, and Gender Expansive Identities, and a service, the Association for Spiritual, Ethical, and Religious Values in Counseling, and is the past president of the board of directors of ASSIST, the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences. Ryan has some 27 publications, including a co-authored chapter on the use of mindfulness-based therapies with older adults, numerous articles on near-death and exceptional experiences, and most recently, an article on depression and mysticism within clinical practice, published in the APA journal, Spirituality in Clinical Practice. Ryan also manages his family farm in Montana, is husband to Mandy and father to two kids, has three cats, a dogs, a dog, <laughs> and enjoys RVing and kayaking during the summer and skiing in the winter. Welcome, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate Apparently it. You're going to have a few more dogs. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that could entirely be true. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you today. So Ryan and I actually know each other because we were in a graduate program together at ITP, the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, which is one of the topics I want to talk about today. But um, like with all my podcast episodes, I love to start by just hearing a little bit about you and your story and how it came to be that you're doing the work that you're doing today. Sure. Um, again, thank you for having me. Um, I really started kind of in this trajectory of, uh, psychology and religion or spirituality, um, at an early age in, uh, undergrad. Uh, my major was psychology and minor religion at Gonzaga University, which was a Jesuit uh, university. And from there realized that I wanted a graduate school that honored both of those, you know, with the emphasis in psychology. And, and that's where we met at ITP. So I landed at ITP, um, obviously had looked at all the sister schools in the San Francisco Bay area that were doing some similar work and, um, but landed at ITP and started off on the clinical track my first year and was set to be a clinician. And that year kind of had some of my own, shall we say, spiritually transformative experiences <laughs> uh, during the process of being in, you know, in grad school at the age of what, 22 or so at, the, at that point. 
And I ended up switching tracks to spiritual direction and expressive arts. And so when I graduated, uh, I graduated with, you know, master's and PhD level certifications in uh, expressive arts and spiritual direction, spiritual guidance, um, but fell into the research more than practice. You know, I did some practice on the side, but I um, got hired as uh, for, to, to teach uh, research classes at ITP, which became Sophia University. Um, I actually taught at a couple different places, but mostly I was teaching at ITP, hired full-time in 2008 and to teach primarily research. And that was what I taught for lots of years um, until 2015. At that time, when I was exiting what was now Sophia University, uh, realized that I wanted to go back and close the loop. And so I went back to school to get a second master's degree, an MS in clinical mental health counseling to to revisit and kind of circle back around to that clinical piece. By that time, I'd already been engaged with uh, leading the board of assist and engaged in that work and seeing how clinicians can really intersect with the mental health um, and spirituality kind of domain. And so I was excited to get licensed and start working here in Montana uh, as a clinician, uh, helping people not just with spiritually transformative experiences, but in kind of general mental health which is in a rural area, uh, it's kind of needed. We got a lot of issues in rural, you know, rural United States. Yeah, and often get overlooked, right? You know, like you don't hear a lot in our field about the issues that people living in more remote places, um, perhaps living in more conservative places, you know, which is gonna bring us to one of the topics I wanna talk about. Um, but yeah, like it's definitely not something we often see in our field being addressed. So I love mm -hmm. that you're there. You're like a, a bright beacon of light, you know, in this area, you know, able to offer people a different perspective on a psychology and spirituality. Um, you've also had your own personal experiences that have really kind of brought you to this, I would say, more alternative sort of perspective on psychology and healing. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, from an early age, I was introduced to kind of meditative practices through my brother, older brother, and um, just had this draw towards uh, meditation and and spirituality. I would say from a very early age, um, as a child. I had an experience where I fell off a raft into the river, into an ocean actually, um, off the coast of Texas and was underwater from what my parents said um, quite a long time. And they finally found me and it was the tumultuous surf. So it was difficult to, to get me and bring me up. I was an infant. But my earliest memories are being in this otherworldly place with this infusion of love and compassion and very much like what uh, near-death experiencers talk about, you know, being in that light. And um, so along with the memory of being in that light, I was playing with other children around a pond and there's, you know, kind of all these details. And so I grew up with that as one of my foundational memories moving through life. Um, possibly that instilled in me this desire to know more about spirituality and um, from there had interesting experiences through high school and um, and like I mentioned in grad school I had a actually a rather profound experience when we were 
studying different spiritual traditions and we were actually engaged in practicing different spiritual traditions as you know our program was very experiential and during that process had what would be called by many a kundalini experience and just kind of shattered my worldview and i had to reconstellate it and find my grounding again and in that process started working with others and have worked with a number of people who've had kundalini experiences can you say a little bit more about that for people who are maybe watching or listening who've never heard of this term what is a kundalini experience or a kundalini awakening Sure. In the Hindu tradition, um, and from what I've garnered, uh, Anu yoga, uh, fire yoga is one of the areas that claim this kind of kundalini tradition uh, or term. But in the Hindu tradition, there's the centers of energy within the body, you know, that we commonly call the chakra system, you know, starting with the base chakra going up, depending on which tradition you have seven chakras or, you know, different, different number, but most commonly you see, you know, the, the seven chakras and going from red, yellow, orange, green, blue, uh, indigo, purple, and, um, Kundalini is the spontaneous release of energy up through that system. And when it, everything goes well, it's not really you know, seen by individuals as a big deal. It's when the Kundalini or the, the energy goes up and hits something in the system and goes sideways. It goes out of what's called the Shashumna, that central channel that problems begin. And for me, that's what happened. It hit my third chakra area and I started having a lot of um, uh, physical problems. Uh, and then again, a head chakra, and I was um, having some head chakra issues, um, you know, confusion and um, derealization, you know, things that would be from a mental health perspective, uh, quite concerning. And fortunately, when it happened, I was actually with a therapist and another grad student from our class doing research. And they were able to get me into a, a therapy office. And I spent three hours processing this stuff that was coming up, which was very much linked to the death of my grandfather when I was a child. And so that kind of um, uh, psychological and emotional, cognitive and emotional stuff was coming up along with this process that I was you know, burning through as I was having this experience. And I was, uh, it was an altered state of consciousness. You know, I was out of it. I, I didn't know where I was. I knew who was around me, the two immediate people around me, but I couldn't have told you where in the Bay Area I was at that time. Um, so I was very fortunate that they were with me and looking out for me. Then I started grounding out and um, had some residual long-term effects because of that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to, to let people know that um, when people have these spiritually transformative experiences, they don't always, they're not always this idea of bliss and oneness and the, mm -hmm. you know, kind of what you describe more as the near death experience that some of them can be like that and can be profoundly um, beautiful and even, you know, ineffable beyond words, but also it can show up in a, in a much more um, difficult way it, with mental health symptoms. You know, like you said, symptoms of derealization or depression, or sometimes yep. people look manic, right? Like, can you say yep. a little bit more about how people can sometimes get misdiagnosed, 
you know, with a pathology when they enter the mental health system with these experiences? Yeah, um, I'll give an example. One of the early people I worked with um, who came to me because I had this perspective as a spiritual director, um, it was when I was working at the center on campus um, at, at ITP uh, in doing my hours. And she was a student, an engineering student at Stanford and had been on medication for quite a while and was wanting to come off of her medications. And when she started talking to me, she started explaining this kind of movement up through her spine and this, she gets really jazzed and energetic. And so we looked at it from this perspective of Kundalini. Um, and while she had been diagnosed with um, depression and um, there were a couple other things I'm not remembering right now, but she had a, a couple of diagnoses. Um, she was able to come off of those medications and allow, and she started doing yoga and, you know, learning how to ground out that energy and work with it. Um, but she was able to deal with those mental health difficulties, the, the sadness, the, um, the periods of hopelessness and helplessness, because she felt like uh, that she couldn't find anything to deal with what was going on inside of her. She didn't understand it. Um, and, and all that really put her into kind of this depressed state. Um, and she was able to come off her meds. Interestingly enough, though, when, when she came off her meds, her mother and sister within months ended up going onto medications for the same diagnosis. And so I started thinking about this whole idea of systems theory and family systems theory and how energetic or spiritually transformative experiences can ripple through a family system. Wow. And, and so um, anyway, that's a whole, maybe a whole different conversation, but um, that's one example. You mentioned near death experiences and how uh, near-death experiences can seem very pleasant and positive, but there's also distressing near-death experiences where people have very negative experiences. Uh, when I was doing my research for my dissertation, I had one person in there who had a very distressing experience as a child. I think he was about seven or eight years old when he had his uh, near-death experience. Riding his bike, he hit the back of a car and the piece of the car went through his eye socket into his brain. And so his experience that he describes is popping out of his body and seeing himself slide off of that piece of the car, his parents come and get him, and he was surrounded by fear and the light instead of the light coming towards him, it was actually receding away from him. And he was trying to get back into his body and it would slip out and try and get back in and slip out. This is how he described it. Um, because of that experience, he felt, he grew up feeling that he was going to hell, that there was no other option. And because of that, he engaged in some very uh, troubling behaviors, uh, Ill, many illegal behaviors throughout his early uh, adulthood, teenage years and early adulthood. Uh, he finally extricated himself from those groups that he had become associated with. Um, but from his perspective, because of that experience, uh, he was going to hell. And so that's another way that these, you know, distressing experiences can lead to mental health challenges. You know, his own sense of helplessness, hopelessness, you know, um, ontologically feeling like, 
you know, there was really only one path for him, whereas, you know, not really processing. It was a very unprocessed. Once he had processed it in the work that we did together, it opened up a whole new side for him where he felt uh, that he could set aside that belief and kind of encapsulate the, the light that um, was, is in normal near-death experiences and um, really reorient his, his life. I've gotten a little bit off topic, but does that help? Oh yeah, no, it's great because I wanted to talk about this and I really wanted to talk with you because you're of your involvement with some of these professional organizations that really are oriented toward helping clinicians like ourselves really have a greater understanding of these spiritual experiences. Cause you know, most graduate programs certainly don't address it. Uh, med school and, you know, psychi- you know, psychiatry is not looking at it. Uh, and, and how important it is for people to be able to process with somebody that understands or at least is willing to, you know, listen to their experience without judgment, without pathologizing them and help them to integrate that experience, how critical that is. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, so what we call um, after effects, right? We call there's the immediate experience that a person has, and then there's the after effects. Quite often, we don't encounter a person as spiritual directors or as therapists uh, when they're in the experience, unless you're possibly an ER doc. Um, like the psychiatrist I published that um, um, piece with on depression and mysticism, as an ER doc, uh, Dr. Tony Benning, we'll see people come into his ER that are in altered states. And, and we've had conversations about that and, and how to work with that. But quite often we get them after they've had the experience in how, how to help people integrate the experience into their uh, life afterwards. You know, they, Rhea White talks about all the struggles that a person can have coming to terms with the experience and how to identify it as, yeah, I've had this exceptional experience. Now, what do I do with it? Do I allow it to transform me? Do I allow it to um, work my sub and unconscious or even my conscious mind about my beliefs, um, the way that I interact with the world uh, and how I approach my own life and my life goals? Not to mention feelings of like, you know, the helplessness, hopelessness, or severe anxiety. You know, when you have things that shift so dramatically, it can cause a lot of anxiety for a person that feels they're standing on unsolid ground. The, the, the sand is shifting underneath them. And so, um, you know, our issues of control will come up. We'll want to control everything and lock it down. Anxiety comes up and, and we have to help them kind of relax and trust the process and, and allow transformation to happen as they're going through those after effects. The other option is to deny, deny, deny. And that leads to a lot of problems like this person that I dealt with, with the distressing near-death experience where uh, it was unresolved and led him down a very, very dark path for many years. People can become suicidal, they can become aggressive. Um, and uh, anyway, that's right, lots of- to, Turn to drugs and alcohol, which is absolutely. the population you know I often work with as yep. an addiction specialist. Yeah, we see a lot of people um, who can't cope with those after effects trying to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. Absolutely. Or other addictive behaviors, yeah. Yep. Yeah, trying to numb out the 
um, the feelings that they're having because of the unresolved or unintegrated aspects from the experience. Um, absolutely. I'm a big fan on the podcast of giving people resources. So one of the things we'll definitely include in the show notes is, is links to assist um, <laughs> because I really love the work that they're doing. And I'm really grateful to you for actually introducing me to them. Um, the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences. Can you just share, since you were involved with their mm -hmm. board and this organization yeah. for a while, can you share a little bit about what this organization offers, both for people who've had the experiences and for clinicians or coaches, you know, people who might be working or interested in working with these uh, experiences? Sure. Um, so ASSIST grew out of IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, which is much more research-oriented and focused on near-death experiences. And there was um, a past president and a group within IANS that realized that we needed to target people who were actually in the helping profession and interacting with people who are having experiences and build a training system for those individuals and that's how ASSIST developed. It was how can we get this information into the hands of those who are on front line? And so they ASSIST developed, um, you know, starting in the late 2009s. I became um, involved in 2011-12, um, came onto the board in 2012, started presenting at their conferences. And um, I think it was 2014 when I was the uh, president of the board of directors. And it, they created or assist created a certification process for therapists. Um, they have one for spiritual guides or directors, and now they have one for coaches. And I believe they have peer support as well. And the training there is introducing people to the large variety of experiences that are out there. Uh, but we use lots of different names for, uh, depending on what researcher you talk about, whether it's peak experiences, exceptional human experiences, spiritually transformative experiences, anomalous experiences. Um, there's, so there's lots of terms. And what assist does is kind of say, okay, well, the, yeah, there's all these terms. Let's put a blanket term of spiritually transformative experiences on this group, this bucket of experiences, and let's talk about them. You know, how do they really affect people and how do we help people uh, get through the experience and even the after effects um, as professionals? Um, and we have, we've had uh, medical doctors come through the trainings. We've had psychiatrists, psychologists at all levels, counselors. Uh, and so it's great to see people kind of getting that information and then going out into their own communities and being a support for people in their own communities. For people that have had the experience, um, I would say this, I don't, they can find the resources so that the best um, intersection there is there are resources on the assist website for them to go download and look at but the organization itself the conferences and all that are really geared towards professionals in the helping profession yeah they do have an experiencers forum and they do have some groups that meet right with um, yes. people who've had the experiences and they're actually more sort of peer-led i'm is my understanding and not so much having like the therapists in there. So, um, which creates a different dynamic, you know? And I think yeah. it's just, it's just great for people to know. I think the, the most important thing um, besides educating, you know, of, and giving the, the professionals um, some resources is for the, for the clients and experiencers to know that they're not alone 
that many other people have had these experiences and that this is a safe place to be able to share those experiences um, yeah. and just feel like you're not so alone. Because I think for a lot of folks who have had these experiences, they kind of feel alienated a bit like, wow, you know, like the veil dropped and now I'm so aware of like all these things that maybe I wasn't aware of before and I'm kind of in two worlds now or, or I'm, um, you know, I feel like a stranger in a strange land kind of being back in my regular life um, and how yeah. alienating that can feel. Yeah. yeah, and so those forums, which were largely starting as I was leaving ASSIST um, before I went into my master's program, um, but yeah, having that place for people to go to and talk to others and say, yeah, here's what I experienced and people to, you know, reflect back. Oh yeah, I had something similar. And then you can just create those friendships and, and support, uh, peer support uh, as, as people are trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Yeah. And just to give a little plug for the research too, because I think research often, you know, gets overlooked <laughs> um, in, yeah. in our field sometimes, but that there is actually a tremendous amount of research that already exists yeah. and is in process on spiritually transformative experiences, right? From mm -hmm. ASSIST, from IONS, IANS. I mean, there's so many organizations that are involved in this. And can you speak to that a little bit? What's going on in the research world? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. And the research has been going on for a long time. And as you know, at ITP, we go, you know, the transpersonal area was, goes back to the 60s. Uh, and the research has been happening for decades. Um, there's, you know, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, part of their conference every year, and they've been going for a long time, is the research that's been happening in that field. And that's probably the largest uh, research domain that I know, just because I was involved with it for so long. I presented at IANS probably for six years or so, and uh, before moving to ASSIST. And even the people who are helping run ASSIST we, when we present, often we present with this base of research that's been done about the after effects of the near-death experience. And we've been trying to broaden the research beyond just the after effects of near-death experiences, but of mystical experiences or unitive experiences, or um, like uh, Dr. Jenny Wade talks about sacred sexual experiences and how that impacts an individual when you have this unitive experience during intimate times. Um, so, there, so it can happen in lots of different domains of life, these, these spontaneous experiences that people have. Um, but the research on it, it gets really siloed into, okay, well, we're just studying this one experience. And uh, most often it's the after effects because it's really hard to study the experience itself. All, so many of them are spontaneous. There has been some research done on um, uh, trying to induce different experiences. Uh, Mario Beauregard has done some of this research with the God helmet and inducing, um, there, there was some research on uh, Carmelite nuns and trying to induce using a magnetic uh, type helmet, these unitive kind of mystical experiences. And um, so there's that research that exists. There's Dean Radin who has been looking at 
these sort of global unit of experiences that have happened through pair laboratories at, at Princeton, uh, when we have these mass shifts in consciousness, how it affects these random number generators all over the world. You know, there's that research. Um, you'd be surprised at how many places are doing different types of research. Most recently, I've been more engaged in mindfulness-based therapies research and how mindfulness-based therapies or these meditative mindfulness practices help people in the clinical realm, um, whether it's working with um, exceptional human experiences or whether it's simply working on anxiety and depression. Wonderful stuff. So you have a client you're working with right now. I kind of want to look at this and also start now looking at like kind of what's it like to do this transpersonal work in a part of the country that's a little bit more conservative, maybe a little bit more traditional kind of with values. And, you know, here you are coming with your California woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> Very woo-woo, yeah. Right? What's that been like for you? And how have clients kind of received this in your local area there. Yeah, that was one of the uh, impetus for me to go back to school and get my uh, more traditional clinical master's degree in counseling. Um, because this area is so conservative, I found I couldn't really do the spiritual direction work that I had done in California here. Um, and I would say that by far 95% of what I do is traditional, you know, therapy work with anxiety, depression, phobias. Um, I work a lot with trans individuals, transgender and gender fluid, uh, as well as LGBT community. Um, so it's not necessarily in this domain. Only occasionally do I have somebody come in that is um, fighting death anxiety. That's a big one, big intersection with transpersonal work. Um, there, I find people that have been afraid of death since childhood, and it's generating all this anxiety in their life. And they've shifted from treating it like uh, simply wanting to take something like lorazepam. They're like, okay, let's look at this because this goes back in my life. And we start uncovering these more existential humanistic layers. Um, and I do have one person that uh, goes back to you know, the article on depression and mysticism that I published, there was actually one of Tony Benning's, the psychiatrist, his patients. Um, because of that, I was already keyed into this concept um, when this patient kind of landed in my lap and I started working with her and, well, you know, everything's telemedicine now, so I can work with people all over Montana, which is nice. And so she's not local, but um, she was going through a process. She initially came to me for depression and kind of wanting to work with the sadness that she was having over this um, period of life. You know, she was approaching 50 and um, having a lot of uh, depression, was on medication, stuff like that. Uh, as we started unfolding the layers, we realized she was practicing Buddhist, um, was doing a lot of sitting meditation. She had this phase of life change she was going through. Um, and uh, she was shedding a lot of layers herself as she was going through this transformational um, of uh, re-identification, finding out who she really was at her core, and this shift from a doing mode in life, kind of that third chakra or that uh, 30s and 40s um, period of life of really trying to get stuff done, get your 401k in, in place and, you know, work, work, work she was shifting from that phase into a being mode 
okay, who am I now if I start to quiet down? When I sit in quietness in meditation and the Zafu, uh, who am I really if I'm not my job? And so that was really the start, where we started. And things developed from there. She had kind of this spontaneous weeping and crying um, uh, period. She's gone through um, almost... Uh, more recently periods where she'll get really energized, you know, jazzed up uh, for two to three days, which as a clinician, you go, oh, is this hypomania kicking in, you know, but it, it doesn't really make sense to, to diagnose it like this because it's a recent development and it's associated with this transformational process she's going through. So the diagnosis of something like bipolar doesn't quite fit for her because she also doesn't have the depressive piece that's now abated. So she has this very peaceful uh, mode of of, um, day-to-day existence where all of a sudden she'll have these periods of kind of excitement and lack of sleep and high energy and then come back down to a mode of peacefulness. And and so you see these ups and downs. If I were not aware of the transpersonal developmental piece that she was going through, I might think, oh, we have somebody who's bipolar. And let's get him to get him on medications because really with somebody who's bipolar, you almost need medication. Um, Right. And and if you give medication to someone who's having a spiritually transformative experience, you can kind of interfere with that whole process, right? Yeah. You can shut it down um, and make it go underground. So it either comes out sideways in unhealthy ways or, comes out 20, 30 years down the road because it remains unprocessed work, you know, and it's you know, from a gestalt perspective, it's unprocessed material. It's such fascinating stuff. Tell us a little bit more about your involvement um, with the LGBTQ community. Um, you're part of the SAGE organization. Um, tell us more about all that. Sure. So uh, again, it's, it's part of the getting rooted into this community and finding out what this community needs and meeting their needs. On the one hand, um, the acervic um, was a really a partner to assist. So the person who helped develop a lot of the materials for assist, Jan, Dr. Jan Holden, who was the chair of the Counseling Association at the University of North Texas, wrote a lot of the organizational principles and the guidelines for a cervic and the organization within the counseling ACA, American Counseling Association, that deals with religious and spiritual experiences. So you see a lot of the same players who are doing a lot of the research, you know, and she, Jan Holden, has a book out with several others on near-death experiences and the 20 years, 20, 30 years of research that's been done. Because of that background, she's able to kind of have a, a foot in both these worlds and help guide the, the building of this trainings for those in assist and those in ACA um, and the, the cervix. So that's the intersection there. The intersection with SAGE uh, is more about being in the LGBT community. So as someone who identifies as bisexual myself, I have a child who is um, transgender fluid and um, also happens to be on the autistic spectrum is Asperger's. Uh, And so there's when, when I was going, I was already drawn to working with the LGBT community because my own background. And when my child came out, 
it just solidified that yes this is where i want to be i want to be helping the lgbt community and and working especially with trans individuals because suicide rates are so high especially in conservative rural communities you know it's comes back to do you want to do you want a, a living trans individual or do you want a dead kid on your hands and and it's you know trying to build in support networks for people who are lgbtqia uh, and and really extending that love and compassion out to that community is um, I don't know it's a calling I would say for me. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know even in our own field there was a time when uh, having a non um, you know traditional sexual identity was considered a pathology. I mean there was a time mm -hmm. when I think homosexuality was in the DSM, right? The Diagnostic right. and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So yeah. can you comment on like how that has changed, how our view of that has changed over time and what still needs to be done? Because I think there's still so much stigma and so much um, judgment and pathologizing of particularly a more fluid gender identity. Yeah. Yeah. So I will be, you know, upfront here and say, this is not my specialty area. I am not a specialist. Um, and there are many people who are much more well-versed than I am in this area, but I can speak to our own experience here in rural Montana. So Montana, for example, we have 56 counties, 52 of which are still considered legally frontier, which is less than six people per square mile. So when you have a very rural population like this um, and the access to resources is difficult. You know, you can be a hundred miles away from a hospital very easily, much less mental health support of, of any kind. Um, those, because of the pathologizing and still in conservative areas, you still get this, um, this pathologizing and stigma that happens for LGBTQ individuals. Meanwhile, you have uh, children coming up through the schools, even in our area, who are much more open to LGBTQ or trans identities. And uh, there are several people in our local community who are trans identified. Um, so not only do they need resources, but uh, helping the community understand that there has been this shift away from pathologizing. It's no longer in the DSM for a reason, because we now realize that it's about, uh, it's not an illness, you know, it's who am I in my body? Who am I in relationship to others? How do I identify myself in the world? Um, and uh, and that's different than something like an anxiety disorder or, you know, um, bipolar disorder or a borderline disorder, you know. Um, so part of it's community outreach, part of it's providing individuals with support uh, and, and realizing that my own child was growing up in an area that could be dangerous for them you know, and really wanting to make it less dangerous for them and anybody like them. So as we kind of wind it down here, I, I'd love to ask people, you know, this question, which is, what do you see as the future of mental health? Or what would you like to see, you know, the field evolve into? Uh, that's a great question. 
One of the things that I appreciated about my training in my master's program, which was actually very much, even though it was a considered kind of a conservative, normal run-of-the-mill master's in, in clinical mental health counseling, it was very much a holistic program, similar to the transpersonal training in my first master's and my PhD. Uh, and I was relieved at that. So they were already open to these concepts of more holistic health, you know, whether you're talking about gut health uh, and taking probiotics, or you're talking about using exercise to combat depression, you know, in conjunction possibly with medication if need be. Um, but looking at the whole person, including the spiritual aspects. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know if it's just because I have been embedded in this for so long, that's where I see mental health being is looking at people from a whole person perspective. And how is it that we can develop and help a person develop health and wellness, not just cognitively, not just emotionally, but from a whole person perspective. So seeing that more and more in um, psychotherapists, you know, people trained at the um, psychology level or psychiatry levels. Um, people, one thing I would like to see is, you know, in this area, if somebody's depressed or anxious, one of their first contacts is usually their, their nurse practitioner and who's you know, handing out medication. I would love to see nurse practitioners and, and medical personnel that are kind of frontline for a lot of mental health stuff have a more holistic perspective. We do have several, but I would like to see it more pervasive. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to see more teams working with, with individuals you know, that have the, you have different types of health, maybe a dietitian working along with somebody who's mental health, working along with a trainer or something like that. Now, in our times of insurance, you know, that's a whole nother topic. I would love to see insurance companies honor this kind of holistic perspective as well. But in times of insurance companies that are reducing their, you know, their businesses kind of trying to reduce their overhead, um, we don't see that. I don't see that kind of perspective. It's more about fix them. You know, that's my, my solution focused therapy practices come into hand pretty quickly with, with a lot of, with some insurance folks, you know, just because it's like fix them and get them through their EAPs and, and get them on their way. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that that's benefiting people long-term. Right. It's just triage. Yeah. It's right. like a, putting a bandaid on it. Right. So that they can get back out there and function. Yeah. I would love to see that whole medical necessity model, you know, shift um, mm -hmm. to one that really is more focused on holistic and, and wellness and, you know, like really preventative people. Yeah. Preventative, like, right. Like preparing people, especially the younger generations to like inoculate them against having issues down the road when you give them the proper, you know, support, especially for the, LGBTQ kids, you know, that are coming yeah. up now, you know, in our society who are here, I think, to change the world. Um, just like yeah. I would say the autistic, you know, in um, this work, I do access consciousness. We call them X-Men. We don't pathologize them. These kids with like, you know, on the spectrum or like with ADD, ADHD, like these are kids with like gifts and capacities. Mm. Um, they're here to change the world. What if we could support and honor them rather than pathologize them and, you know, dope them up with meds and things that maybe aren't actually serving them might fix a short-term problem, 
behavioral problem or, or the school problem who can't manage them, but in the long run, isn't really serving them. I'm, I'm with you on that. I would love to see that change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that Thank would you so much, Ryan, for being here today. This has been such an interesting yeah. conversation. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where, where can they go? So uh, I have a couple different places. One is my website, uh, romangercounseling.com. You can also reach out to me at Dr. Ryan Rominger. That's D-R-R-Y-A-N-R-O-M-I-N-G-E-R at gmail.com. Um, you know, look me up on Google. There's going to be lots of hits, mostly from articles and, and my work with other organizations. But yeah, feel free to reach out and and I can guide guide you to uh, resources or help out however I can. Thank you so much for being here today. And thank, thank you, you all. Adriana, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's really been fun to, to reconnect like this. And um, thank you so much, those of you who tuned in. Um, if you like this podcast, please do click like, share, comment. Let's get this out there. Let's get these tools and these perspectives in the hands of more people so that they know that there are other ways to address a mental health condition. Um, so I really appreciate Ryan and everyone who was here today and see you next time on Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.